Good afternoon. Welcome back again. I hope you've enjoyed lunch. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's my great privilege to um, introduce our uh, speaker today. Uh, Dominic Perrottet is the Treasurer uh, in the New South Wales Government. He's been a State Liberal MP since 2011. Uh, a year ago, the Daily Telegraph said of Dom, quote, Dominic Perrottet has a touch of Clark Kent about him. <laughs> but he'll need to work like Superman to juggle his roles as a father of five, husband to a high-flying lawyer, and his day job fixing Sydney's housing affordability crisis. And today, the same newspaper, the Daily Telegraph, it's I'm not here to talk about Barnaby and having him done his split. <laughs> New South Wales looks to the Howard era. It's a lovely page 14 story on Dom looking like Clark Kent. <laughs> and it says that um, he will be inspired by Peter Costello when he hands down an election year New South Wales budget next month. Now, many of you may recall uh, the former Treasurer Peter Costello was here at CIS uh, in the, shortly after the uh, federal budget. Dom is just 35, 35 years of age. He's the youngest treasurer in New South Wales. It's extraordinary. And as it happens, Dom and I supported each other for our respective Liberal Party pre-selections. Um, I lost mine in 2009. He won his in 2010, which explains why I'm here and he's there. <laughs> um, and although he supports the West Tigers in the NRL, and uh, the Jacksonville Jaguars was in the, in the NFL. He's a fundamentally decent bloke and he's a sound conservative legislator. Ladies and gentlemen, Dom Perrottet. Uh, thank you, uh, Tom. And uh, can I say that CIS has done very well in uh, drafting Tom. Tom uh, texted me from, from the US, I think late last year and said that he was taking up a job at, at the CIS. And I thought, you know, you could not you could not get a, a better person in, in Tom Switzer to lead the charge. And as, as, he's, as he pointed out, we, I think we met each other 10 years ago. And uh, I've been incredibly impressed with Tom in terms of the thought leadership uh, from a conservative side uh, that he's always had. And uh, yes, he's, he, he uh, unfortunately uh, wasn't successful. I don't know uh, who's better off at a as a result of uh, those pre-selections, uh, Tom. But I'll say this, uh, supporting South, you're never going to be better off. And, uh, and, and, but what you can say about Tom is that he's, just like myself, uh, we support really bad sporting teams. So we know what it's like supporting a team when the chips are down. Um, so he's going to be there for, uh, for, the, uh, for the long term. So uh, Tom, thanks uh, for everything you're doing. It's great to be here um, at CIS once, once again to address you. Uh, so today I want to begin uh, with two pictures. Uh, the first is of today. We live in a golden age. Just 200 years ago, more than nine in 10 people around the world lived in extreme poverty. Today, it's less than one in 10. Free trade, property rights, the rule of law, the entrepreneurship has been the greatest anti-poverty weapons in human history. According to the OECD, Australia is now the third, 13th most prosperous nation in the world. We're ahead of Canada, the UK, Japan, and most importantly, New Zealand. Uh, at the end, at the end of his, uh, you can always get away with a New Zealand joke. It's a treat every time. Um, at the at the end, uh, at the end of his uh, presidency, Barack Obama said 
If you had to choose one moment in history in which you could be born and you didn't know ahead of time who you were going to be, you'd choose right now. Now, given uh, that now is the best time to be alive, uh, you'd think we must be the happiest generation in history. But sadly, we are not. Instead of basking in the golden moment, Western democracies are torn with discontent. Politics is polarised, communities are fractured, and the traditional bonds of family are fragmented. We see the same thing here in New South Wales. Our economy is going from strength to strength, but not everyone feels that they are sharing in the success. Communities are feeling the strain of rapid growth with more people and seemingly endless construction to build the housing and infrastructure that we need. Family budgets are under pressure with mounting personal debt uh, and housing, no doubt, is an incredibly important part of that. Uh, back in 1975, the Australian dream cost four times the median income. Today, it's 13 times. Interest rates are at historic lows, so they can only go in one direction. But wage growth is stuck well below where it was before the GFC. By historical standards, we may be doing well. But day to day, many people, particularly young people, feel locked out of the opportunity they believe should be within their grasp. That's the picture of today. The second picture is of a future that is fast approaching, a future where Asia, not the West, will account for 60% of the world's middle-class consumption. A future where, according to some predictions, one-third of all Australian jobs could be replaced by automation. A, a future where the New South Wales population will swell to 11.2 million, the equivalent of every single person in Brisbane moving to New South Wales, as well as the entire population of Adelaide moving here as well. But the population won't just grow, it will age too. This means the number of workers for every person over the age of 65 will, sh will shrink from 4 to 2.4. It's a future where one in every $3 the New South Wales government spends will be swallowed by healthcare. And where government services will cost around $15 billion more than the revenue government collects. That's the forecast for, for New South Wales in 2056. I'll be 74. My youngest daughter will turn 39. It's the future, these, in the future, these burdens will fall on her shoulders, uh, but today they fall on ours. I believe that at this moment in history, New South Wales has the potential to be the best place to live anywhere in the world, not just for today, but for future generations also. To make this happen, we must face up to the challenges mounting on dual horizons, to ease the pressure people are feeling today, and at the same time, chart a course to weather the storms looming in the distance. And this means now is the time for a new wave of real reform. But in our current political climate, mired in polarised partisan debate, large-scale reform seems to be out of reach. So today I want to talk about three things. First, the major obstacles to reform. Secondly, how state governments particularly can address them. And third, how these ideas are shaping the work of our government here in New South Wales. And how importantly, uh, they are shaping my thinking as we head towards this year's budget. There are many obstacles to reform and I certainly don't claim to have all the answers. 
but there are two I think especially prevalent in today's political climate. The first uh, comes from the uh, current flavour of the month, everyone's favourite economist, uh, Thomas Piketty. Maybe not so much um, at the CIS, and somebody's probably not uh, quoted at CIS lunches uh, regularly, uh, but he had a recent analysis uh, which Adam Crichton has uh, uh, written about uh, just recently. Uh, earlier this year, uh, Piketty published a study of the voting habits of people in France, the UK and the United States. He shows that since the middle of last century, politics has descended into a contest of the elites. On the right is the merchant elite. Big business and wealthy vested interests look locking in behind right of centre parties and influencing their agenda. Meanwhile, on the left, parties that used to stand for the working class are now captive to an out-of-touch, highly educated elite. Piketty didn't study Australia, but his an analysis no doubt rings true here as well. As, a, as the deputy leader of a party on the right, uh, I reject the idea that we are beholden to big business. But it is true that Liberals have had to fight some bruising internal battles in recent times. We've had to get lobbyists off the state executive, limit the influence of developers, and make pre-selections in our party more democratic. So we might be resisting it, but the pressure from elite interests is real. On the left, it's even more stark. Just look at the Labor Party's uh, platform, a litany of niche far-left policies that bears no resemblance to the hopes and the aspirations of most working Australians. As Adam Crichton, quoting you twice here, uh, put in The Australian recently, uh, Ben Chifley and Bill McKell, Labor leaders who once championed the dignity and incomes of ordinary men and women must be turning in their graves. And that is why Labor's biggest electoral battles these days are with the hard left Greens in, uh, in the aff affluent uh, inner city suburbs. And that is why you can be sure uh, where the Greens are today, uh, Labor will be tomorrow. When democracy is reduced to the contest of elites, more and more people will, feel, will continue to feel shut out by the major parties. It erodes the very currency of politics, trust. It is no surprise that last year, Essential Research published a poll that found the most distrusted institutions in Australia were now political parties. So the rise of elitism should make conservatives sit up and listen. For liberals, it means we risk forgetting the very people Menzies cautioned us not to. And so when an outsider comes along, listens, and gives the people a chance to reject the establishment, they will grab it with both hands. The second major roadblock to reform I see uh, is the rise of the 24-hour media cycle. Back in 2011, when I first was elected to parliament, uh, Lindsay Tanner uh, wrote a great book about it called Sideshow. Tanner's point was that in a world of 24-hour news, with media outlets desperate for an audience, and with politicians eager to get their message out, political discourse veers to the simplistic and the sensational. Politics becomes more about entertainment than government, a daily ritual of stunts, slogans, and sound bites. Reform is hard, and you've got to go out on a limb, but the 24-hour media cycle, you have to be very brave to do that especially when elements in the media uh, and social media are just waiting to fire up the chainsaws. The reforms of the Hawke, Keating and Howard eras 
delivered enduring prosperity for our nation. 27 years of undisputed, uninterrupted economic growth. But the combination of these two phenomena, elite politics and a 24-hour news cycle, helps to explain why this can be more difficult. It produces governments who are more focused on winning the next election than focusing on future generations. And that matters because if we are really focused and making sure that we have a hope of addressing the challenges of the coming decades, we need reform of a substantive scale. But I believe the biggest opportunity for reform dividends will not come from the federal government, but from state governments transforming the everyday services that they provide. So what can state governments do to relieve some of the pressures we're facing today and at the same time get a head start on the challenges of the future? The first step is for governments to rediscover their purpose, to regain trust and respect. The antidote to elitism isn't populism, it's restoring trust. Too often, among the voices of vested interests, lobbyists and activist groups, it's middle Australia that misses out. People need to trust that government is working for them, not against them. That the development of public policy has their best interests at heart. And that, the major, and that major reform will preserve, not dismantle the social contract. Creating equal opportunities for all citizens across the state to get ahead. Secondly, state governments need to get back to basics. To quote George Bush Senior, Governments should do what it does well and no more. This means focusing on the fundamentals, things like quality education, world-class healthcare, and roads and transport for growing communities. Doing things well is what citizens across this state expect. When a government's agenda becomes too broad, it gets distracted and it falters on the things that matter most. And if you can't execute the fundamentals, you can't be trusted with reform. The third step is for governments to commit to living within their means. One of government's strongest impulses, always has been, is to find more ways to spend more money. Departments keep growing, programs never end, and it's always the taxpayer who pays. The better way is not to spend more, it is to spend more wisely to make better use of the resources we already have, to cut waste and put lazy assets to work, to use digital technologies to transform our services, to measure success by outcomes, not by how much we're spending. This is a matter, this is a matter of justice for the taxpaying citizens of our state. And it's a matter of justice for future generations too. And this is why the issue of government debt at any level is incredibly important. In the end, someone has to pay. So as well as focusing on, the, on their agenda, the third thing governments must do is commit to living within their means. If we do, we can deliver the services and the infrastructure that our communities need right now. We can use our present financial strength as well to prepare for the future. And we can do it at the same time by, whilst lowering uh, the tax burden on taxpayers today. A fourth challenge is to find new ways to engage citizens in policies that will shape our shared future. To drive big reform, you have to bring people on the journey. 
That could mean finding new ways to involve citizens more directly in decision making with ideas like participatory budgeting, which gives people a say in how budgets are spent. But ultimately, it comes down to communication. We must be upfront about the challenges of the future. We must be clear about how we plan to solve them, and we must articulate the ultimate benefits of reform. And that's why I think Lindsay Tanner's book only told half the story. Yes, the amplified voices on social media have made, in some sense, reform harder. But the flip side is, in the age of the internet, there are more avenues than ever to give people the information they need to back the right reform for the future. Lastly, state governments should be in the business of enabling aspiration. I believe the government's role is to create the conditions for a strong, free and fair society to flourish. Not to run people's lives, but to provide the broad architecture so that people are free to lift themselves up to greater heights. To chase the richness of life and the productive opportunities that abound in our great state. Former English Prime Minister David Cameron called aspiration the engine of progress. For us conservatives, he said, it is not just about growth and GDP. It's about, it's what always makes our hearts beat faster. People rising from the bottom to the top. And whether it's Howard Battlers or Tony's Tradies, history shows centre-right governments are at their best when they are helping people get ahead. It will come as no surprise uh, that these principles are principles that are shaping the story of our government. After seven years of a Liberal National Administration, we are living within our means. The finances are on a strong and sustainable footing. We are dedicated to the fundamentals. More schools, better hospitals, the new road and rail links that we so desperately need. We have brave, bold reform like the poles and wires. And we've harnessed technology to transform government services. The economy here in New South Wales has a spring in its step. Businesses are investing again. More than half a million jobs have been created since we've come to office. We have cut taxes. We've made inroads into getting first home buyers uh, back into the market uh, with our first home buyer stamp duty concessions. We're helping families uh, to, to win uh, in, the in the issues around uh, the cost of living with programs like our active kids voucher, CTP rebates and rego rebates for heavy toll users. We've also developed the most significant and comprehensive vision for Sydney's future as a metropolis of three cities. It's a framework to support our future generation and future populations, creating room to grow and space to thrive. In Treasury, in the last 12 months, we've seen us turbocharge our reform agenda. We've completed the Poles and Wise transaction and now moving on to WestConnex. We've recognised the needs for states to drive reform and form the Board of State Treasurers. We've created the first ever Productivity Commission to drive deregulation and very soon we will announce the first New South Wales state economies. This year's budget will take us on the, on the, import, on the next important step in that journey. It will push the benefits of our stronger economy deeper into our communities, focusing more intently on making them great places to live. And it will continue our efforts to lighten the tax burden, cut red tape and ease the pressure on family hip pockets. It will also have an eye firmly on the future. There'll be new initiatives 
to harness our current financial strength and to meet uh, coming challenges. To better engage the public on the journey ahead and to position our state for the reform that we will need to tackle in the coming decades. To finish, as Thomas pointed out, I have real skin in the game. The future that is coming is the future my kids will grow into. I worry about the jobs they will do, the quality of life that they will be able to enjoy. They remind me every day that the government that I'm part of has a great responsibility to earn the trust of the people of this great state and carry the torch of reform to secure its future. A government that did what it had to do, deliver for, the, for today and build for the future. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dom. Um, when Chris Bowen, the Shadow Treasurer, addressed us earlier this year, he also made the point that um, social media uh, was a serious challenge to economic reform, but he also said that it's a cop-out to blame the relentless 24-7 cycle for um, uh, undermining the prospects for implementing uh, structural reform and wealth-creating reforms. So, intriguingly, you're on the same side, so that's good to see. And we at CIS do promote long-term structural reforms, but we also recognise that in this very polarising climate, it's very difficult. Now it's time for Q&A, and our first question comes from Eugenie Joseph, who happens to be one of our economists at CIS. Eugenie. Uh, thank you, Treasurer, for that speech. Um, it's certainly very, very interesting. Um, you did mention, obviously, you, you worry about your children's future, and, um, and you mentioned um, prospects for the future, and you also mentioned how many young people do have concerns about the future, about their ability to enter the housing market and reflect a certain negativity, I suppose, about the future. But at the same time, you've also talked very comprehensively about how New South Wales is really investing in um, infrastructure and transport and health services, which all benefit young people over their lifetimes. Do you think um, there is a problem of communication with, especially with young people, about communicating the benefits of long-term reforms and making them feel like they're, they're not being left behind? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very good question, Jenny. I think um, once millennials work it all out and come together and fight um, and have a greater voice at the table, uh, then you might have a greater platform for reform. I think one of the challenges you find um, in, in government is that uh, you generally get a whole range of lobby groups that, that champion reform, but people who are actually out there, busy, living their day-to-day -day lives, working, balancing, balancing work and family life can be very, very hard to then join a group and start advocating for a public policy change. Um, so, but from a government perspective, it's very important that we meet people where they are and make sure that we are building a city and a state going forward um, that uh, will benefit the living standards of the people um, across New South Wales. And I think if you look at, um, and what I see now and talking about not sure you want to win you want to win an election because you believe what you believe is better than what the other guys believe um, and you can't do that unless you're in power uh, but you don't just want to do it and you just don't want to have policies that might be populist to get you ahead because uh, that's not why you get into politics you get in politics because you really want to transform 
the state and make a real legacy, uh, a, a, a substantive difference uh, to our society. So I care more about what, um, what uh, the state looks like in 30, 40, 50 years, uh, the opportunities that um, our, you know, our kids will have, uh, the, the you know, and as, as we see the three cities come online, housing affordability I think will be improved for the first time in a long time, I think since the days of Lachlan Macquarie, uh, we are seeing the map of New South Wales being redrawn before our very eyes. And to have this three cities concept, to have for the first time, I can tell you in government, it's very rare to get areas of, uh, of different agencies actually talking to each other, uh, working together, whether it's health and education and transport, uh, to transform this state. Uh, that's a challenge because at the moment, there's more cranes over the skies here than anywhere else outside of Dubai. Uh, and we literally are living in a construction zone. Um, but uh, we're not doing that for the sake of it. We're doing it because we know the end product of what we're delivering um, is really going to be beneficial, not just uh, for the future generations, but for people today as well. Tim Jones. Uh, Treasurer, thanks very much. I'm in awe of anyone who can prepare a budget and look after a basketball team of kids at home. So <laughs> good on you. Um, I wanted to Two ask you Sorry. about the um, next election. So as you well know, a lot of the infrastructure that you've spoken of doesn't come on stream until after the election. It is very tough for any government these days seeking a third term. And I think the most recent news poll had um, the numbers at basically 50-50. So I just wanted to invite your comment on you know, prospects for the next election and, and, and where things are at. Thanks, Tim. Look, I think the fundamentals in New South Wales are incredibly strong. Um, I was down at the Board of Treasurers meeting uh, which I established and uh, we were down there in Melbourne, I think, last Friday. And uh, you know, what, what the interesting thing when you talk to them is that uh, they're under political pressure for not, for not being in a strong financial position and being able to actually build any infrastructure. Uh, uh, we're, in, we're, in, we're, we're creating political problems for building too much um, infrastructure. Um, but look, we've, what I think we've got to be focusing on a lot more is the outcome. You know, liberal governments, conservative governments, focus too much on the numbers. They focus too much on, oh, we're making record investments uh, in, in, uh, uh, in schools, in hospitals, but they talk about the dollar figure, you know, as if that means anything to anyone. Uh, you know, people can, you know, the, the, most people understand, I guess, the size of their mortgage. But if, if I was to say, what is the, you know, is there, a, is there a much greater benefit in investing $3 billion in schools or $4 billion in schools, uh, there's a negligible uh, benefit to that. And I think as, as conservatives and uh, who, who sit there and focus on the budget and the finances all the time, we can lose, we can lose uh, a sight sometimes of why we do what we do. Um, and uh, all the numbers in the budget uh, behind each of them are, are real people um, and the strong financial management that we take in day in day out I think will produces great dividends and uh, so going into um, the election and sure those projects aren't open yet I don't think that is a nece that's necessarily problematic uh, when we first came to office in 2011 we started building uh, and I'm as a representative for Castle Hill at that time the Northwest Metro um, now that was a project that the Labor Party announced uh, in 1985, I was three years old. Um, uh, you know, you can't, it takes time to build infrastructure projects, um, but uh, we started that in 2011 and we'll open it um, in the back end um, of 2019. It would be ironic um, if it wasn't, wasn't a, liberal a liberal government uh, that was opening um, that project. Uh, but look, 
Uh, so I don't believe that's a problem. I think the biggest um, challenge for us is to communicate the benefits of the strong financial management because social outcomes uh, and strong financial management are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Our opponents uh, talk a lot about opportunity, fairness, equality, but they're never in a position to deliver it because they don't do the work day in, day out to put us in a strong financial position to make those investments in communities across the state. Yes, sir. A recent study by the Reserve Bank confirmed what we all already knew, that town planning in Sydney adds several hundred thousand to the cost of every new dwelling. Mm. Um, they didn't study what is even worse, is the, the town planning approach to industrial development. Uh, industrial land is being rezoned to residential. New industrial land is rarely rezoned and only on conditions which are incredibly expensive, time delay and difficult. Nitpicking over trivia can delay projects for months and interest rates build, land tax bills, rates build and the cost of, of working and providing employment and simply buying a roof over your head is greatly increased unnecessarily. Um, great, great statement. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> question mark? Uh, what, what, what I will say on that is there's no doubt that the Greater Sydney Commission is doing work on that space, particularly on the industrial land. Um, I recently appointed a productivity commissioner, Peter Arkestrat, um, who was a former Auditor General in New South Wales. Um, and there were a number of key areas um, which uh, he is tasked to look at in the short term. Um, and one of those key areas is housing affordability. And one of the, key, the core impediments to housing affordability, as you quite rightly point out, are our restrictive planning laws. Um, so uh, the Commonwealth has had a productivity commission for some time. A lot of the ideas that have come out of that more recently are largely areas, as I've pointed out in the speech, where the state needs to reform. Um, and that's why I've set up this productivity commission located within Treasury and, he, and, and reporting up uh, to me uh, because I want uh, this role to drive better reform, uh, cut regulations and red tape, and for governments to not be so prescriptive in the way they look at them, look at issues. And I can tell you, for example, an area of like Build to Rent, which has been incredibly successful um, in the United States and is just coming online um, in the UK, um, that you can have smaller floor space ratios and a more aesthetic product, uh, but you have planning departments um, that just literally apply a very prescriptive view on, on what they should um, or should not allow when it comes to development. I think we need to have a wider conversation around that um, and uh, we need greater public policy development. And I think the role that, um, that Peter will play from in, the pro in this new New South Wales Productivity Commission will look at particularly uh, areas that, that you're referring to. Prescriptive, sorry. Treasurer? Sorry, Mr. Call, this week, Jim. I think we should, we want to congratulate Tom and CIS for having you here today. You're a man of vigour, and I say ruthfully, ruefully, youth, energy, <laughs> courage, and principle. Thanks, Jim. And I'm sure that we've got a uh, future Premier and maybe 
um, someone of more substance in our nation addressing us today. I have just a simple question. You kindly referred to this question of lobbyists and pre-selections. Yeah. Uh, we have the right still continuing, uh, despite the support of two ex-prime ministers. Uh, the parties here who are, um, have embedded that system, that iniquitous system, and we had a recent example of the seat of North Shore. Um, are we ever going to see that tackle, be that problem be effectively tackled? Uh, look, Jim, I think the party's come a long way. Um, we're, f we're, we're still uh, probably in that space uh, far, from, far from complete purity. Um, but um, there is no doubt that the more both sides, both political parties, open up to rank and file members uh, to have a say uh, in the party and in the pre-selection process, uh, you will get better outcomes and you will get um, members of parliament um, who best represent um, their electorates um, and at the same time, I believe, get a higher calibre um, of politicians um, on both sides um, of the House. And, you know, we need good people in both parties. Um, you need uh, bright people, whether it's in the Labor Party or the Liberal Party, I won't include the Greens, but, um, but uh, you need, you, you, and, and that ensures a strong, robust and functioning um, democracy. And I think from the Liberal Party's perspective, uh, we should have, uh, from in, in New South Wales, in every one of our safest seats, uh, we should have people with the capability um, of becoming a Premier uh, or a Prime Minister. Uh, that is the party's duty, um, not just um, to our state, but, but to our nation. And uh, I think given where we have come from, and uh, I joined the party and it was in, um, in Tom's pre-selection, and, and perhaps Tom would have won, a, won, won, won that pre-selection or won a pre-selection in circumstances uh, where all members um, were given a vote. And finally, whilst it's delayed, uh, I think we're on the pathway back. And I think that will ensure that more and more people will hopefully join our party, participate in the process, and get better members um, in, uh, uh, into the parliaments. Yes, Thank you, Mr. Treasurer. A wonderful speech. I'm more than double your age. And I've found that over the last couple of decades, encouraged by the media and the shock jocks, Australians have lost their optimism and become a bunch of whingers. And I think that the government is catering to all these people and too many people your age think that they're owed a career and not doesn't get it through the sweat of your brow. And I would like to see the government telling people to toughen up. <laughs> this could be a very dangerous question to answer. Um, Adam's got his pen ready. Uh, look, um, we live in the best state in the best country in the world. Um, and... Uh, the less governments are involved in people's lives, I believe, the happier they'll be. Um, and uh, we, uh, there is no doubt, and it's not a government issue, uh, we can, fo it, it, it's, it can be human nature to focus um, on the negative, to focus on the, the issues that occur every single day. Uh, but you know, we should not forget how fortunate we are. In fact, I take, I take some year 12 students every year, uh, rather than go on schoolies week, uh, we go out to um, the Northern Territory. And uh, we, we visit, we, we, we've, in fact, the last two years, we've refurbished an entire high school uh, at a place uh, outside Yalara. And I think for those year 12 students, 
rather than go and have all the excesses of, of the Gold Coast, to go out and see how some of our brothers and sisters are living in these communities is a real eye-opener to the opportunities um, that they have been given um, and the challenges that people are facing, not, on a, not in the third world, but in our country um, right here at home. And uh, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're a, it's very easy to blame and, and, and uh, throw stones at, at the younger generation, but I see, I see these, these young students as, as um, you know, great, great role models and will achieve great things. But one of the reasons I wanted to set um, this program up was I was fortunate enough when I was 20, and I went on schoolies week, and I was fortunate enough to probably be a bit you know, crazy at, at university, and I was fortunate enough to trek the Kota track in, in Papua New Guinea. And what struck me uh, along the way, it was actually not along, along the track itself, but being back at B Bamana War Cemetery uh, and seeing the rows of uh, gravestones um, of young men at, who at the age of 18 fought for the freedoms that we have today. And if you actually think about what they did uh, and how we spend that freedom today as 18-year-olds going up to school this week, um, I think you, you can't get a starker difference between the freedoms they fought for and how we, and, and how we celebrate uh, those freedoms today. Uh, so the first group we took, we went, we went across uh, to, to Kokoda. But look, I, I don't, I don't so, but I, what I'd say to you is I, I don't share the pessimism. Um, there are always challenges for, for the younger generation. Um, and uh, um, I have a great faith that uh, they will be the ones that build a great state and a great country going into the future. Dommy, you handle that uh, dangerous question with a plum. Let's see if you can handle this dangerous question with a plum. It's from my colleague, the Director of Research, uh, Simon Cowan. Thank you. Um, and you did mention, you know, the 24-hour news cycle, and I'm sure you recall last week that the opposition leader made headlines with his comment about white flight and Fairfield. Now, the press focused that primarily on the racial issue, and there's no question that there is a racial element to the concept of white flight. But there's also a socioeconomic element, and that's the stratification of society, where people of disadvantage tend to congregate in specific areas that are then disadvantaged areas, <laughs> and wealthy people tend to congregate in areas of you know advantage and wealth. And you see that over time, cities tend to sort of develop pockets of disadvantage and pockets of advantage. So my question, aside from the issue of, of race, do you actually see Sydney developing pockets of disadvantage in places like, say, Fairfield or Mount Druitt or elsewhere, and pockets of advantage, say, eastern suburbs of North Shore? And, you know, whether or not that, that's something that we need to address, specifically the fact that elites who tend to make political decisions are congregating with each other and not having a lot of exposure to people from other backgrounds? Great question, Simon. Um, so I'll take that in two parts. Um, the first part are the comments of the Leader of Opposition last week. And uh, my view in relation to those um, was that it was a cover um, for the Labor Party failures uh, to invest in infrastructure over 16 years. Uh, uh, the point he was making, in essence, was that the infrastructure and the support um, is not there um, for these communities. Well, you know, building a rail line or building roads is not like a game of SimCity uh, where you go to bed at night and you wake up in the morning and boom, there we go, there's the hospital, uh, there's the school. Um, so we inherited a $30 billion infrastructure backlog when we came to office. We, now have, we are now investing over $80 billion over the next four years. Um, so uh, there is no government, uh, in my view, in our state's history 
that is invested more in infrastructure than before. So for the Leader of the Opposition to come out um, and somehow use migration as the substantive point for, um, for there not being enough investment in infrastructure, I thought um, was, was, was pretty poor form. Uh, in, in respect of um, the other aspect uh, to your question, I think a lot of, those, a lot of communities across the state um, have improved. Um, I was out at uh, Warwick Farm yesterday, and we don't, you know, when you talk about places, I mean, you're going out to Cabramatta. A lot of those suburbs had significant crime issues in the past. Um, they have uh, substantially improved um, over time. And I think our city um, has improved. Our crime rates, for example, are at record lows. Um, the access to um, health and education has improved substantially. And in terms of, in terms of, I guess, the growth of the cities and making sure they grow well and inequality is reduced, I think the planning and this three cities vision, I think will, will actually have a big impact. Because in the past you've had, just like in the areas of the states, the urban sprawl going out without there actually being any substantive plan to how Sydney grows or, or how our state uh, looks in, in, in the future. So to see that plan there, to see the fact that you're gonna have access to quality schools education, to see the access to healthcare, to see that the road and rail that will come onto families to get home um, uh, faster from work, um, I think is really going to transform what you will see over time. The investments that we make today will ensure that an inequality declines into the future. Don, thank you. Uh, the Centre for Independent Studies is very fortunate to have a very distinguished board of directors. And I call upon my colleague, uh, Rob McLean, to deliver the vote of thanks. Rob. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Minister. It's a privilege to have you today at our um, leadership lunch. Uh, I think what's come through is your aspirations and your sense of purpose are both exciting and they're also contagious, I hope. Um, I'd paraphrase uh, some of your remarks uh, by, that you uh, framed uh, with the question, um, uh, how come we have such doom and gloom amidst the boom? And, um, and that's something that uh, we're, we're trying to come to grips with in CIS as part of the research program that we're, uh, we're involved in. Um, the uh, reform agenda that you talked about uh, of uh, limited government and of government living within its means um, is of course part of the CIS agenda and it's um, a great pleasure to hear you uh, talking it through so confidently. And um, as Tom mentioned a little earlier, uh, We've, you've backed up from having Peter Costello a few um, couple of weeks back, and of course we've had that great pleasure of having two treasures who have delivered um, surpluses. So we're uh, greatly appreciative of uh, your time, uh, the consideration you've given uh, today, and I invite you to join me in thanking the Minister. Rob, thank you, and thank you, Dom, and thank you all for being here today. Our next event is on Tuesday next week. It's with the Liberal Democratic uh, Senator David Lionholm, and the subject will be life on the political crossbenches. Uh, if you're interested, please contact us. And the next uh, nighttime event will be on July 10. It's with the former Prime Minister, John Howard. It was originally scheduled for... June 19, but uh, the former PM called me apologetically yesterday to say that, of all people, the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, had seconded him uh, to number 10, 
uh, for a, a London think tank event. So I thought, well, what's he going to do? Is he going to go to the London <laughs> to meet with the, the Prime Minister Theresa May, uh, former Tory leader William Hague, and former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper? Oh, come here at the CIS. Anyway, he, he chose them. But he'll be here. <laughs> he'll be here on July 10. If you're interested, please contact us, and we hope to see you again. Have a great day. Thanks so much.